Welcome into Studio 2, which as of today has been around for six months. Not canceled yet. Wow. I'm Avi Wolfman Aaron. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Yay, happy half anniversary. <laughs> hey, did you just come up with that? I did. Wow, I like that. Half anniversary. Thank you. So I'm pretty hungry for today's show, Avi. Chef Lydia Bastianich is here to share some of her recipes. And the stories behind meals passed down through her family. She is one of our favorite PBS chefs. And while she's here, you, friends, might want to send in some of your own cooking questions. You can call us. The number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. One of the biggest mistakes people uh-huh. have made in the first six months of the show is they send in their questions too late. I know. After the show is over. Send them now. Studio2 at whyy.org. Also, Cherry, a pretty significant antitrust lawsuit was filed by the FTC in 17 states, including all three in mm-hmm. our region. The target of this suit is a big one, Amazon. Tech reporter Will Aremus has the scoop, and in a couple minutes, in addition to that, we'll find out what Pennsylvania is doing in response to a report showing toxic forever chemicals, or PFAS, in the state's waterways. Right now, though, we're going to backtrack to something we talked about Yesterday, Yeah, we were talking about the looting that mm-hmm. took place uh, Tuesday night. Well, it happened for a second night in a row in Philadelphia and into this morning, including a fine wine and good spirit store in Crescentville. Two people were arrested as they were loading up a car with liquor, Avi. The store was not boarded up. A group of mostly women broke into a beauty supply store in Mayfair. The store had just opened about six months ago. Um, And they had to reopen today because they had bills to play, right? Mm -hmm. And I should mention that the Pennsylvania Liquor and Control Board, they have closed all 48 wine and spirit stores in Philly because of that looting. There's also an increased police presence. And I should mention that it was originally reported that the looters were mostly teenagers. But when you look at the list of ages, a lot of them were adults in their 20s and 30s. Um, And it's alleged that they use social media to organize. One example Uh, One of the 52 people taken into police custody is 21-year-old social media influencer Deja Blackwell, also known as Meatball Online, uh, Mm. was arrested for allegedly using her social media platform to encourage people to engage in looting. She was literally live streaming when police found her. So, (sighs) um, And, of course, the Democratic uh, mayoral candidate Sherelle Parker weighed in uh, on Wednesday. Here's what she had to say. Those who sought to use this as an opportunity to commit crimes in our city, they should be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law. We have to make sure that we bring some order back to our city. Yeah, and so the the interim police commissioner, Stanford, also taking a hard stance, Republican mayoral nominee David O. also said peaceful protest is a constitutional right. Looting is a crime. Everybody's saying looting wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess congratulations to Meatball on her 15 minutes um, of fame, right? Yeah, an impending conviction. Um, but I get, I, I just, the people I feel bad for is mm-hmm. the family of, I mean, I feel bad for the business owners, but Eddie Irizarry Jr. Yeah, I know. Having like one of the worst days of their life mm-hmm. earlier this week, the, the police officer is likely not going to face any criminal charges in his death. And now they have to they have to issue these statements telling people to like stop doing this, uh, trying to connect this to to his death. Um, just stinks. Like <laughs> to put the family through that. 
Because um, one has nothing to do with the other. And the police have said that. The police have said that the people looting are criminal opportunists. They're not people who are who are trying, who are truly protesting the judge's decision to throw out the case, which we talked about yesterday. But um, yeah, I just feel bad for the family. That's really that's really the first thing I thought about. Yeah, because all the attention now is going to the looters yep. instead of the issues related to um, the Eddie Irizarry case. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. which has been appealed, by the way. We should just uh, mention that again. Mention that yeah. again. Um, lack of destruction, I guess, is our next story. Mm. Uh, the spotter lanternfly, when it came to our region, there was a lot of fear that it would uh, wreck native trees. This is an invasive species. We were told to stomp them. We were told that they would be everywhere. And initially, they kind of were. Mm-hmm. But a new study um, by researchers at Penn State found that the native trees have actually been pretty resilient oh. and that the lanternflies have not had the destructive effect that many thought that they would have. Uh, maples, willows, birches, uh, they saw some reduced growth in this experiment after the insects fed on them, but then they kind of rebounded. The one tree that was really hit hard by the lanternfly was this tree of heaven, which is itself an invasive species oh. in our region. So uh, some good news there. And There was um, our producer, Andreas, spoke with Kelly Hoover, one of the mm-hmm. researchers. By the way, feel better, Andreas. Andreas is a little under the weather. I know. Um, But Kelly said uh, that when the researchers initially saw some of these trees suffering during the arrival of the lanternflies, it may have actually been attributable to other causes like too much rain. Um, So it was sort of, it it was coincidental. It was Mm -hmm. not correlative. It was correlative and not causal. And so it was just um, perhaps something that they overstated or got wrong. I'm kind of interested if there's, you know, there's going to be more on this about like why the the modeling of their predictions were off. Yeah, very interesting. I will say lanternflies do still kill grapevines mm-hmm. um, and they're travelers, you know, so they will hop, you know, on a train, hop in a car and go to different areas. That's how they spread. But I recall last year they were, they were everywhere where I lived. Yeah. And then this year I just barely saw any. So I was very happy about that. But I'm also glad to know our trees will survive. Kelly also said, Kelly mm-hmm. Hoover, the researcher, the one that you actually got to be careful for oh, is something yeah, yeah, called yeah. the spongy moth. So that'll be the next uh, insect. That sounds like a predator. <laughs> spongy does. moth. Spongy moth, bad. Ew. Lanternfly, I guess, still bad, but not quite ew, as ew. bad as they thought. Spongy. All right. Like Take name. us to the Senate now. I want to go to the U.S. Senate, yeah, because we talked about the dress code story a few days ago. Well, the Senate unanimously adopted a formal dress code on Wednesday after they stopped enforcing an informal dress code earlier this month. Of course, all of this began by because of Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman likes to wear shorts and a short sleeve button up to work at the U.S. Senate. (laughs) And Republican members of of the Senate, they complained. They called it an insult to the decorum and tradition of the body. And it has been one of the most talked about things in Congress, even in light of a government shutdown coming. Um, And so Fetterman sort of said, look, I will... Dress up if y'all avoid this shutdown. He joked about that. But but now the dress code for men is includes a coat, tie, and slacks. Fetterman actually voted for this. I think it's a good thing because, honestly, I'm taking a stand on this, which <laughs> is something I rarely do, but I have to take a stand because I don't believe that if a woman wore shorts yeah, that's a to fair point. Um, the that's U.S. A fair point. Senate, she would be taken seriously. So I didn't feel like this new rule would benefit anybody except Fetterman. Yeah. 
No, that's a fair point. Uh, you know, I and I mean, no shade on Fetterman. You know what I mean? Right, 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 right. You, you, you're just saying that it might be sort of if Im- I was imbalanced. The, the Senate, perception come on. is imbalanced. No, I hear what you're saying. Mm-hmm. I feel less strongly about this than you. Yeah. Um, it didn't offend me, but when you made that point to me earlier, mm-hmm. it did make me see this in a new light. Which is, you know, like you said, perhaps some people have the luxury of wearing less serious clothing and still being taken seriously. Yeah, than other folks. And I will say he is representing millions of people. So, you know, where none of whom wear suits, probably. Probably. (laughs) I don't wear a suit to work. Good point. Good point. And most jobs, a lot of jobs you can wear shorts now. So there you go. Hopefully that closes the book on this. It was a real (laughs) triumph of bipartisanship, by the way. (laughs) Because it was unanimous. (laughs) It was unanimous. The one thing they agree on, apparently, is is the dress code. Um, So transitioning now to our newsmaker interview, we have talked uh, about PFAS on the show before. Mm. These toxic forever chemicals used in common products like nonstick pots and pans have been linked to serious health conditions. A recent survey of waterways in Pennsylvania, like the Schuylkill and the Wissahickon Creek, found uh, PFAS in over 70% of our rivers and streams. And here to talk about what researchers found and the state's response to that is Zoe Reed. She is WHYY's watershed reporter. Zoe, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks so much for having me. So, Zoe, the Pennsylvania DEP announced that it's going to increase monitoring for PFAS. What does this mean the DEP will do or start doing going forward? And what are they hoping to accomplish here? Yeah, so the U.S. Geological Survey determined several hotspots in the region that contain PFAS. So the state is basically going to up its testing for PFAS in these rivers and streams that the study showed were most prominent. And going forward, this will help them develop standards for the amount of PFAS in rivers and streams and also help limit the releases of the chemicals from certain facilities. So once they have the standards um, and they're doing the monitoring, What happens if the standards are violated, Zoe? They have not announced that yet, but there are various other types of chemical release standards that the state puts forth. And this can range from various amounts of fines. So it's possible it could look something like that. So what prompted this, you know, increased scrutiny? The state has been looking for ways to implement more regulations around PFAS now that we know so much more about them and the dangers. They recently just implemented restrictions on the amount of PFAS that can be in drinking water, and they wanted to take a step to look into surface water in our rivers and streams. I was struck uh, by some of your reporting around wastewater facilities, that they are a major source of PFAS. And when I read that, Zoe, I was like, what does that mean? Like, a a source in what regard? Like, they're the ones producing the PFAS, or that's where the PFAS are are pooling, but they're from other places? What is the role uh, of wastewater facilities in all of this? So there's actually been a lot of studies about the role that wastewater facilities play when it comes to PFAS contamination. So if you think about it in layman's terms, we're consuming PFAS on a regular basis from various different products, and that has to go somewhere, right? So ultimately, it ends up in these wastewater facilities, and these facilities frequently release wastewater into waterways, and that is how it is getting into our environment. 
And so as a reminder, um, what are PFAS and what are the major harms that they cause? So PFAS are a group of toxic chemicals. They can be found in several products from nonstick cookware to waterproof clothing. And they're also in firefighting foam, which you may have heard can contaminate the environment and get into drinking supplies. And they can re release, be released into the environment for years. They can get into our bloodstream and they can cause some serious health problems like cancers and thyroid disease and developmental delays among children. Those are just some of the risks. And uh, the original products that contain this stuff, that's not impacted by what we're talking about here, right, Zoe? I mean, because at some point I would imagine you have to get to the source, the source, the source. Um, but what we're talking about right now, it, I got to imagine that it doesn't actually impact the, the products themselves that contain the PFAS. Correct. This will just focus on monitoring where the PFAS is coming from and also implementing some regulations that prevent the releases of PFAS to the environment. But I spoke to a couple environmental scientists and advocates who say that this should be more multi-pronged. So they should be working with these manufacturers to try and get them to stop manufacturing the products that contain the chemicals to begin with. And I got to mention, we have an email from Jess for you, Zoe. Uh, Jess says, it is impossible to get rid of PFAS until the state agrees on a harsh crackdown. Could we see that, a harsh crackdown coming up? That's really difficult to predict. And a lot of advocates will say, well, they've been very slow <laughs> to even start implementing some strategies. So, you know, it's to be determined, but they're there are way more regulations than there were in the past few years. So hopefully in the coming years, we shall see more changes for PFAS. And last question, less than 30 seconds. Is there anything we can do to prevent our exposure? Yes, so there are some things that we can do. There are some filtration systems that can lower the amount of PFAS that comes out of our taps. There are also some things that we can do when we're looking for various products. Some companies are limiting PFAS from products and they will put that on their labels. And um, you can even go as far as popping your own popcorn because oh, popcorn wow. bags that you get from the store contain PFAS. we got to pop off to the next topic, Zoe, but we really do appreciate the time. That is Zoe Reed, Watershed Reporter for WHYY News. Stick with us on Studio 2 coming up, talking to Will O'Remus about a big antitrust suit against Amazon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back. This is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman, Aaron. Cherry. Yes. Bobby. <laughs> What's the last thing you ordered on Amazon? I ordered like a bath mat, I think, and like a toothbrush. Holder. A bath mat and a toothbrush. Yeah. I needed was... them fast. Yeah, I needed them quick. They came in like yep. the same day. Yeah. I So I needed a uh, a wall mounting thing for my television because of football season coming up oh, and I was running out ready. of time. You had to be ready. Yeah. And I feel bad about it now. Um, bath mats, cosmetics, clothing, mm. dog food, yep. electronics. Still books. Yeah, yeah. You can get all those things on Amazon, have it delivered to your door the very same day. 
That convenience, speed, and selection are what have driven what was once an online bookseller to become one of the largest retail companies in the world. This statistic shocked me when I read it. 38% of all online products in the U.S. are bought on Amazon. Wow, but that market dominance has now drawn attention from the FTC. The Federal Trade Commission and 17 state attorneys general, including Delaware, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania's AGs are suing the e-commerce company for antitrust violations, charging that Amazon has built a monopoly online that stifles competition, harms consumers, and the third-party vendors that sell their product on Amazon's websites. Washington Post technology reporter Will Oremus has been covering this case and is here to tell us more. Will, welcome to Studio Two. Thanks. It's good to be here with you. And you, friends, can chime in about Amazon's business model. Do you think it's fair for consumers and other businesses? You can email us and do it right away <laughs> at studio2 at whyy.org. Uh, okay. We mentioned, Will, those third-party vendors. Mm. They're key here in, in this antitrust suit from what I understand. So what is the, the core of the FTC's allegation here? Right. Amazon is a gigantic company. As you know, it does all kinds of things. It runs a lot of the backbone of the internet. It owns Whole Foods. It owns healthcare businesses. But the focus of the STC's suit is on the part of Amazon that most consumers know. It's the part where Amazon sells stuff online. And there's actually two dimensions. One is Amazon selling stuff to consumers. And the other is what you mentioned, which is Amazon is a platform for sellers. If you want to sell something online and you want to reach that vast Amazon audience, you're going to go to Amazon and you're going to use their platform to find your shoppers. Yeah. And so um, what are they saying that Amazon is necessarily doing that is wrong, such that it is crushing all these vendors and it's bad for us as consumers? Right. I mean, uh, you know, on a basic level, it might seem like this is just about whether Amazon is too big and too powerful. You know, does it hold a monopoly? That is a relevant question. But what this lawsuit focuses on are a couple of specific business practices that it says are harming competition and ultimately harming consumers. Now, Amazon may have low prices. What a lot of consumers don't see is that if you sell a product on Amazon, Amazon has a rule that you can't sell that for less anywhere else. Mm. Otherwise, you'll get sort of buried in the search results and nobody will find your product on Amazon. And so uh, one of the arguments is that this actually raises prices elsewhere across the Internet because Amazon is so big the FTC argues that you can't afford as a seller to not use Amazon. So once you do, then you can't sell for less anywhere else. There's a second prong to the argument. Um, The second thing that Amazon uh, allegedly does that's illegal, they say, is that if you want to get that Prime label on Amazon, if you want to be part of Amazon Prime and have people get that free shipping, that that quick delivery you were talking about, you have to use Amazon's own fulfillment services. So Mm -hmm. you have to let Amazon do the storage, the boxing it up, sending it out. Uh, And if you don't let Amazon do that, if you try to go through somebody else to do that, you won't get that Prime label. And again, probably nobody buys your stuff. So the gist is that Amazon and all that is stuff using- costs money. The stuff that yeah. Amazon, and then and then that adds fees to the products that we buy. Exactly. So even though the prices seem low on Amazon, the government's argument is that Amazon is actually inflating prices all across the Internet with these fees that you basically can't afford not to pay if you're a seller. And then even if you could go to another site that doesn't charge you all those fees, you wouldn't be allowed to sell for less there either. Yeah. I mean, search is such a big part of this, Mm -hmm. right? Because the idea because I assume one of Amazon's responses will be, 
You don't have to use our products. You still can be on the platform without using all of the other stuff we offer. And the FTC, it seems, is saying, yeah, you can be on there, but no one's going to be able to find you. Yeah, that's going to be part of the crux of the argument. And one of the other things that Amazon has done is you probably notice if you shop on Amazon a lot, when you search for a product these days, the top two, three, sometimes five results are actually advertisements. Yep. It's not yep. always even clear they're advertisements. Sometimes it'll say like, high, it'll have this label that says highly rated. In fact, the company paid to get that label. Straight so that pay would, to play. Exactly. Yeah. And so Amazon collects extra fees there. And so if you really want to be near the top and get a lot of sales on Amazon, you actually have to pay Amazon even more to advertise. And so now I'm feeling a little guilty because everything I buy is like has that prime label. Ooh. Yeah. Um, but so I want to talk about how were they able to sort of like it, it sounds bad what they're alleged to have been doing. How have they been able to get away with this for so long, and and why now from the FTC? Well, a lot of these types of practices are generally considered legal as long as you're in a competitive marketplace. You know, if you're one player out of 10 big uh, online retail sites and you put in place these kinds of fees, the sellers can just go someplace else, right? Mm -hmm. No big deal. Uh, If the consumers find that your prices are too high, they'll go someplace else. The question is, does Amazon control so much of the market at this point that people really don't have a, a lot of choice? You know, are you, are you going to be locked out of a lot of the market if you don't use Amazon? That's called market power. And that's going to be one of the cruxes of the legal arguments here is can they show that Amazon holds a large enough swath of the relevant market to be considered a monopolist? Amazon is going to say, well, you know, if you look at any of the markets we we actually are selling products in, right, whether it's baby products or, you know, bath mats, TV yeah. mounting stands, we don't control any of those markets. You can, there are other options for all those things. You can go to Best Buy. Just go Buy, somewhere else. Yeah, go, go to, to Bath and Beyond. Go to an actual Exactly. Yeah. They're going to say that they're competing with those brick and mortar retailers. Mm-hmm. The, the government wants to say, no, you, your competitive set is other online superstores, and there are only a couple of them, and you're by far the biggest. Um. I think we have to mention the name Lena Khan here, mm-hmm. uh, chair of the FTC. It seems like she and Amazon have been on a collision course now for several years. Explain her role in this and why, I guess sort of her as a character seems to be part of this story as opposed to just some nameless FTC head. Yeah, we usually think of, of FTC bureaucrats as being sort of nameless and faceless, as you said. Lena Khan is not. She is someone who probably will be remembered by history. She was a third-year law student in 2017 when she came wow. out with an article in the Yale Law Journal that, that turned the antitrust world on its head. She sort of crystallized this growing movement to reconsider how we think about big business and monopolies and market power. Fifty years earlier, Robert Bork had come along and said that big is not bad. Big is okay as long as the prices are low. You know, it's okay if we get all this corporate consolidation as long as they don't jack up the prices for consumers. That ushered in decades of consolidation. The big businesses got bigger and bigger and bigger, and the government did not stop them as long, again, as long as they weren't jacking up prices on consumers. Lena Khan came along and said, we're thinking about this all wrong. There are all kinds of other ways, especially in the tech world and on the internet, that these giant platforms can harm competition, can act like monopolists, even if we're not seeing the results in the prices that they're offering to consumers. One of the insights that she had was that, uh, you know, sometimes we pay with our data when we use some of these, these, whether 
their free online services like Google and Facebook, or even the when we shop on Amazon, we're giving our data as part of that bargain, and that has value that hasn't been recognized. The by data antitrust discount law. that you're getting yeah. on Amazon. And one of the things she argues is that the way antitrust laws have been interpreted have been too narrow, and she wants to broaden them. How would how would she sort of reconfigure these laws? Yeah, I mean, well, she actually uh, after she went to went to law school, she went to Washington and she joined the staff of the House Antitrust Subcommittee, and she helped craft a set of laws that would have reconfigured antitrust policy in this country. Mm. It did not pass. It, it got bipartisan support. It looked like it might pass. Ultimately, it never got to a floor vote. That didn't happen. So now she's in the FTC, and now she's an, a regulator and an enforcer, and she's going to see what she can do from that perch. And one of the things she can do is launch these sorts of lawsuits. She's already sued to block some big mergers in the tech industry, like Microsoft buying the gaming mm-hmm. company Activision, Facebook buying a, a, a VR startup called Within. Those were unsuccessful. Uh, now she has taken over the FTC case to break up Facebook, which was launched under the Trump administration. And she is launching this new uh, big Amazon case, which will be one of the landmark cases of her career. And she's young, too. She's 34. Yeah. Boy. Uh, I'm not going to say my age To be the head of the FTC, yeah. (laughs) Um, But you mentioned this earlier, Will. And I know this this is not being tried in the court of public opinion. But I would imagine that still matters. And if you go on Amazon right now, you don't see prices that feel that inflated. In fact, they look cheaper than what you can buy elsewhere. And you mentioned in the past, that's usually been the test. Or, or have the prices been jacked up? So how does that come into play here? Yeah, that's going to be a big part of this. And this is why it's somewhat of an uphill battle for the FTC. Uh, Amazon is going to say, look, we have low prices. We ship stuff fast. We're reliable. Consumers love us. Why are you going after us? Like, Why are you trying to ruin a good thing that we've got going here just because of some political agenda? Um, And so the FTC is going to have to try to make the case that Amazon is ultimately harming consumers, even if you don't necessarily see it when you're on Amazon. Again, there's that point about how Amazon's rules are resulting in higher prices elsewhere. Uh, They're going to try to make the case that because Amazon has these policies that you have to use their shipping, um, that has prevented the the emergence of other online platforms that would exist that maybe would be more innovative, come up with different ways of doing things. That's innovation that we're not getting because of Amazon's chokehold on the industry. And and I got to ask you a quick follow up question and zoom in on our region, because our all of our state attorneys uh, general are involved in this lawsuit. What does that mean? And I got to mention you know, Delaware just opened this big distribution center, Amazon, people working down there. Could some of these states be shooting themselves in the foot since Amazon is a big employer and we only have a minute and a half? Well, that's a that's a really good insight. So whenever the FTC or the DOJ launches one of these big federal antitrust suits, they try to get as many states to sign on as possible. Uh, they love to have both Republican and Democrat state attorneys general sign on so that it can show that it's a bipartisan thing. It's not just political. Uh, in this case, the FTC has only been able to get 17 state attorneys general to sign on. Now, that sounds like a lot, but the DOJ has like 40 in, the, in its case against Google. One of the reasons for that, I think, is because a lot of state uh, politicians know that Amazon's one of their biggest employers. They have mm-hmm. people who are going to work at Amazon. They don't want to spook uh, consumers and uh, employees in their state. Uh, uh, by by going after this very popular and very important comp- company, a- Amazon is actually the second largest employer uh, of any company in the United States behind only Walmart. 
And of course, we just want to disclaim that, of course, Amazon involved with the Washington Post, your reporting is completely independent. Mm-hmm. Uh, anything you want to add there for our listeners? Uh, yeah, I mean, just another sign of how big Am- <laughs> <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> this, the, these giant businesses are. Jeff Bezos owns the Washington Post. Uh, he was the founder and CEO of Amazon. He, he is no longer that. Um, but we always disclose that to readers, as well as the fact that our interim CEO is an Amazon board member. So yeah, they don't, they don't luckily, they stay out of our coverage, uh, but we always want to let readers know that. Absolutely. Amazon Thank you, everywhere. Will. Thank you, Will. Uh, that is Will Remus writes about technology for The Washington Post. Appreciate you being on studio, too. Thanks so much for having me. Coming up, chef and PBS food Lydia. show host Lydia Bastianich is standing by. She's got a new cookbook out with delicious recipes. We are calling all home chefs. You guys are already writing in because she is going to take your questions. Stick with us. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back, listeners and viewers (laughs) and eaters. This is Studio 2. I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm smiling because I am sitting across... From James Beard, award-winning chef and the host of the PBS cooking show, Lydia's Kitchen, the one and only Lydia Bastianich. She has a brand new cookbook out, co-written with her daughter. It's titled Lydia's From Our Family Table to Yours. And the recipes and pictures will make your mouth water. And I'm being literal here. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to talk about those recipes, the connection between family and food. But first, Chef Lydia Bastianich, just a pleasure to have you with us on Studio 2. Thank you for having me. Uh, We we mentioned Lydia's going to take your questions. There's already a bunch of them, Mm -hmm. um, but get them in as quickly as you can. Studio 2 at WHYY.org or you can hop on the phone 888-477-9499. So, Lydia, if I wanted to be like you and I wanted to just sort of have a basic pantry full of ingredients that I could use to create some of the meals displayed in your book or shared in your book, what do I need? Give me the list. Oh, well, it's going to be a long list in a sense. Mm -hmm. But, uh, Cherry, you need, the first thing that you need is confidence that you can do it. (laughs) All right? Get a good dose of that. Get (laughs) in my mind first. That's a good set. (laughs) But then, then, you know, because I I profess Italian cuisine, so therefore the olive oil. Mm. Uh, You need all the spices, the peperoncino, the oregano, then the fresh herbs like the sage, the uh, rosemary. Uh, Then, of course, you know, some of the the canned goodies because people always think, oh my God, you know, I have to go out and shop. But canned or jarred products like the olives, like mm. the capers, like the peperoncino, like the anchovies. These are all good uh, flavor-enhancing uh, ingredients. Uh, San Marzano tomatoes, peeled tomatoes, tomato paste, balsamic vinegar. These are all things that you can keep in your cupboard uh, and and still make dry pasta, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, then you can go, of course, to the, the grated cheeses, the grana, the gorgonzola, the regular soft cheeses. So, you know, you can increase. But those first basic ingredients, they can be in your cupboard, and you can come home from work and make a great plate of pasta. Love mm. it. Um, 
you mentioned this this book you describe as a love letter to your family mm-hmm. um, and and so many of the recipes have family connections you serve them with family and I was curious how does your family preserve recipes is it just sort of whisper down the lane or is it note cards how do you guys sort of share I know we get in the kitchen you know you just get I, in have, the kitchen. I have you know certainly my mother was in the kitchen but I go way back you know uh, I came to the America as a 12 year old immigrant a young immigrant I come from a part of Italy that is no longer Italy uh, on the northeast shores. So, you know, when communism, uh, World War II and all of that. So there I grew up grandma. And, mm-hmm. you know, grandma actually, we had all the animals. We had chickens. We had ducks. We had rabbits. We had goats. I would milk the goats. You know, I would feed the rabbits. We had pigs. And so every every November, the slaughter made prosciutto, So made olive oil. So I was involved in all of that as a child, not because there was a plan of Lydia being a chef, mm-hmm. just because that was the nature of it. And it continues. In an Italian family, the kitchen is the center. Usually, you know, you come next to grandma, then mother comes in, and you come and you work, You whether you make the pasta, whether you make the gnocchi and whatever. I think it's fun for the kids. I think, you know, uh, uh, it's, they enjoy it, but also they learn. And just being in the kitchen the smells, the aromas, that all lives, leaves an imprint in one's mind. Uh, it's like and, by osmosis almost, yeah, and just exactly. soaking up these recipes. Exactly, exactly. And then, of course, you change them a little bit as mm-hmm. you go along the way. There's a little bit of, of, of change in recipes and family or addition. Uh, but, you know, like uh, peanut butter and jelly. I never had it as a child. <laughs> yeah. But we love it. We, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. And I have to, you um, have your grandmother featured throughout the book. She has a great smile, by the way. Um, And I understand that food helps you remember. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Could you talk about a memory of your grandmother that's sort of like, you know, centered in food and just sort of what that cooking of that food does for you and to bring you closer to her. Right. Well, the book, the grandma in the book, that's my mother. Mm. And she passed two years ago. So the book is in her honor and the whole family and the recipes uh, are a reflection of that, a profile of us. My grandmother is the grandma that I just talked about Mm -hmm. and that was left behind when we escaped and migrated back into Italy from the communist Yugoslavia that was then. And uh, uh, Cherry, you know, when when that happened, I was 10 years old and um, I didn't know because, you know, the border went down and we had some family left on the Italian side and we were on the Yugoslavian side. So we kind of, my mother, my brother, and I went to visit family in the Italian Trieste is the city. My father was held back because they were afraid that the whole family would remain there. And he ultimately escaped about two weeks later. And we gathered. And, you know, when he came, then I realized that I wasn't going back because, you know, you didn't tell children yeah, this yeah. kind of things. And I think along the line, you know, as in retrospect, as I think, why do I have this passion for food? Why do, does it mean the smells thing? And it's precisely what you what you said is that when I couldn't get back to my grandmother, cooking the food that I remember cooking with her, the smells that I remember brought her back with me. And she, even though I by now I was an immigrant in a in a refugee camp, uh, cooking and and continuing my life with that 
always brought my grandmother with me, whether it was the chicken with potatoes, whether it was the Sunday sauce that she made out of the chickens that we had running around the courtyard, yeah. the gnocchi that were served with that, the, the sage that went in there. All of this, I, they're vivid. I mean, I can talk about them because mm. they're all come back in my in my memory. And I think in in my kind of a, a progression evolution, coming as an immigrant in the United States, and then ultimately getting into the food was precisely that: trying to keep my 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 grandma, my heritage, those wonderful years as an infant that I had with nature and with uh, grandma, and uh, lots of lots of love. Yeah, and then beautiful. there's a mix with some of the recipes that you became familiar with here, including Italian-American food that was not familiar to you Mm -hmm. from where you came from in that northeastern region of Italy. And you talk about beef rollatini in this book, Uh which was something you, I think you'd never heard of, right? And then you came here and you saw it in Italian-American cuisine. What was your impression of Italian-American food when you you arrived? Right, well, that is the evolution in this book that, you know, as we, we... grew and moved on as I had my family here. My children are, of course, born in America, you know. What what I did find when I first came, and it was strange, this Italian-American cuisine was quite different than what we cooked at home. But uh, I became intrigued by it, and uh, and in my career, actually, I really sort of researched it and researched into it, you know. When was this born? And it actually is a very venerable cuisine because uh, the big influx, the first big influx of Italian immigrants came at the end of the 1800s. And uh, they came from three regions, from Sicily, from Calabria, and from Campania, which is Naples. That's all southern Italy. Exactly. Yeah. So the Italian-American cuisine reflects that those those three regions very much. But can you imagine these immigrants coming here, remembering, having all those flavor memories that we just talked about, but not getting the ingredients, not having the ingredients? So they may do with what they found. And, you know, the meat part, especially one of the, one of the things that was interesting is that in Italy, these people, these immigrants came because they needed a new life. They mm. needed food for their family and whatever, and meat was scarce. They came to America and meat was plentiful. Mm. So in that sauce went the bracciole, the meatballs, the sausages, pieces of, of, of pork, not used in Italy. That's not the Sunday sauce as we know in America is not known in Italy. And so in this book, I have some of those recipes that I pulled out that are, you know, people love, and we use it in our house now. That's beautiful. And I want to um, bring in a comment um, from Tim. Uh, talking about pasta, Tim says, I was raised using a spoon for pasta and heard you do not. Can you please remind the world again, no oil in the pasta water and don't snap it in half. We know who does it. I think I live with one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And then I have a quick follow up to that. <laughs> cardinal rules, you know, don't crack that spaghetti. We like it long as Italians, you know, uh, and we don't use a spoon to roll it up. A fork is enough. You kind of go in a corner, take a few strands, and twist that fork, and then bring it up and and enjoy it. Yeah, there might be some strands hang, hanging, but we managed to get them in, in our mouth. So, uh, of course, no oil in the pasta water when you're cooking the pasta. I have been doing it wrong. And, and I will tell you this, Lydia, I in looking through your book, I'm not the best cook, but I can cook a few dishes. But your book was not intimidating mm-hmm. to me at all. It felt like 
very accessible. Like I could do it specifically the spicy, crispy cauliflower recipe. I felt like I could do that with the cheese and the, and the butter and all that. Um, I want to talk about accessibility. Is that one of the things you try to make happen on purpose or is it just that's the way your family cooks is that the recipes aren't hard. They aren't complicated that anyone can do it. Well, it is the uh, uh, Italian cuisine is straightforward and simple. It is mm-hmm. based on the ingredients. So the best ingredients, seasonal, whether it's produce or whatever, try to get the best and use local and ingredients and elaborate it as little as possible. Now, when chefs have cookbooks or shows or whatever, I think that sometimes they feel like they need to show how much they know. Mm-hmm. In my case, that's that's not, I don't. That's not a necessity. I wanted to transmit my culture, the, the cooking of my food, my, uh, where I was born, to my adaptive culture. So it's like two families. I wanted to unite them through my food. And hopefully, you know, 25 years on, on PBS. Yes. Uh, it's, 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 uh, I've, I've been doing some of that with my books. So I really, it's not about me as a chef and what I know, but it is how can I teach, how can I transport that simple knowledge, my native culture in the kitchen, to my adopted adaptive home now, yes. which is which is America. And uh, it's, it's, there. That's where I want to go. That is the reality of how people cook at home, how mothers cook at home in Italy. And that's the way you should cook out here. Uh, you know, when you and cook your hands time. are in the food. Like it, <laughs> I was like, there is no, you just dig right in. You mix things with your hands. I love touching food. Yeah. I think it's, you know, uh, it's the best tools you have in the kitchen. Let's put it that way. Your hands <laughs> are the best tool that you have in the kitchen. But, uh, 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 you know, the sensibility. My hands tell me about food things, you know, whether it's I can tell if amount, if the meat is really tougher or if the, the tomatoes are overripe. So I, I use those as sensors. Speaking of overripe tomatoes, we have an email from Joan. We always talk about how fresh ingredients make the dish, but what should you do when your garlic has a little green center or your tomatoes are overripe? Can you still make a decent dinner? Mm, good question. I, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you don't want to waste food. So, uh, the garlic, the greens. So you pull it out. You 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 cut it out, and uh, uh, it's it's or even sometimes you have a little spot of, of on on the garlic or on the onion. Cut that out. Use the rest of the vegetables or whatever. Tomatoes, ripe tomatoes. If they're ripe tomatoes, you know, a salad will become kind of mushy and all that. But make a sauce with it, you know. It's it's uh, so or make make even even a, a soup, a nice tomato soup. Juicy, juice the tomatoes and whatever. Now we have all these gadgets, uh, and uh, so yes, absolutely use uh, the vegetables or the produce or the fruit as much as you can. Discard what's not, you know. You you look at it if the whole thing is kind of moldy and all that, you throw it out. But if you can salvage, salvage it. I love that. Um, uh, we have another question um, from Paulina, and Paulina says, "What is Lydia's favorite vegan recipe?" Oh, vegan! I love vegetables. You know, us Italians, mm-hmm. and my book is full of vegetables and legumes and 
that is the basis of the Italian cuisine, and I think that's why it's, you know, kind of the, the Mediterranean cuisine and the health aspect of it. So uh, what do I like? I mean, I like eggplant parmigiana. I like the uh, baked roasted vegetables in a salad. I love that. I mean, uh, depends on the season, I must say. You know, what is in the season, then the vegetables. Those are the ones that I use. The cabbage is coming in. I was just looking. There's some great savo- heads of savoy mm. cabbage out there. You just braise it in the pan with a little bit of garlic, olive oil, a little peperoncino. It makes a great side dish. All right. We want to do a little story time here with Alan because Alan wants you to talk about your time at Christopher Walken's Bakery in Astoria, New York. And I know you've been asked about that before, but Alan just uh, wants you to reminisce about that time. All right, Your connection to the Christopher Walken family. Go. Yes. All right, Alan. Uh, You know – when I came to America again as a, as a young immigrant, uh, at about fourteen, uh, you know, I was a, I'm a big girl, so so I was ready maybe to 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 do a little money on the side, do some side jobs, and right across the street in Astoria, where I lived, that's on Broadway and Thirtieth Street, was Walken's Bakery, this mm-hmm. delicious German bakery, and uh, uh, sometimes we would go in there and buy little things, but. I found the the nerves, and I went up and I asked uh, Mr. Walken that you know if I uh, I needed a, a weekend job or a, a part time job whether he would take me, and he did. He took me for Friday nights, Saturdays, and Sundays, and of course uh, the Walken family has three boys. <laughs> Christopher has two brothers, and the boys every weekend, which you know I really admired, uh, uh, Paul Walken, who was the father made them work in the in the in the bakery they would do deliveries they would uh, stuff the jelly donuts like you know like everybody else and we became friends we remained friends you know when you're teenagers you kind of uh, 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 connect and uh, uh, we still remain friends till this day okay I have to ask the follow-up did he always have that halting way of talking even when he was a teenager you know he was he was he was a cu- curious dude should we say <laughs> uh, but i remember he was young and he he loved the arts yeah. so he would go to dance school so i you know i said gee this young boy going to dance school that's nice and then he would come and work so he he loved uh, uh performing and uh he he stuffed the jelly donuts and all once in a while he would kind of throw in Jokes and things. Now, he was actually very pleasant. Actually, I went, his mother took me to the first show that he did. He did Best Foot Forward uh, with Liza Minnelli then Mm. uh, uh, on Off-Broadway. And I went to see their first show. And I always remember, we recall it all the time. Uh, uh, And, uh, you know, he's still a great guy. He loves to cook, by the way. And and speaking of... um cooking, I got to ask you about um, the repurposing of food. And you're a big fan of recycling food. And I love to take something for dinner and make and add some eggs for breakfast. You got it. And and could you make the argument like that? Because you what are some good things that you repurpose? Leftovers. Anything. Oh. Well, it has, you know, vegetables have a great repurposing. You can make 
a pasta the next day with some a little bit of garlic, a little bit of oil. You chop up the vegetables that you have cooked and a little bit of the pasta water, uh, maybe a little bit of butter, and it makes a great pasta sauce for the next day. You can make a risotto. Uh, stocks, of course, uh, and soups are always reusable. But even, even meats, you know, like the tortellini and the agnolotti that we all love, those are usually leftover roasting meats from mm. Sunday. So, you know, on Sunday, if you have a mix uh, of roast, uh, uh, the chicken a little bit, maybe a little bit of veal and whatever, and all those pieces that were left with all those vegetables, like the onions and the yeah, carrots yeah. in there, you turn that into a stuffing for a tortellini, which we all love. As simple as that. But that's the, the Italian way is to find, uh, you know, the next day. And the question is, is it not to just reheat it. To make it into a new, new dish. New dish, yeah, yeah. Repurpose, yeah. Repurpose. Frittata eggs are always a great sort of carrier mm-hmm. of, of this leftover stuff. I want to make sure we get in at least one more question from our audience. This is from Rob. Can you talk about different types of olive oil, cooking oil, versus something you'd want to use on a raw tomato and eat? Uh, oil, uh, you know, there's a whole spectrum of oil. The vegetable oils, whether it's canola uh, or or corn oil or vegetable oils, uh, are are good in the high temperature zone. So if you're frying mm-hmm. and uh, because they have a higher smoking point, uh, the uh, olive oil is um, it's has a lower smoking point, it smokes. What smoking point really means is that when you raise it to a certain uh, temperature, the, the, the molecules uh, bind the ions really and makes it harder for you to digest. It raises the temperature, yes. It fries better, yes. But the digestion part you should leave for the olive oil because the olive oil is a, a, a more nutritionally sound and you don't bring it to high temperature. So the olive oil, uh, what I do is, like let's say you're doing a chicken dish, I brown it in vegetable oil, get sort of discard that. Then when I make the sauce with the chicken, I introduce olive oil, and that remains in there, and that's what one ingests. Our Bull final tip education. for the hour. <laughs> Thank you so much, Lydia, for being with us on Studio 2. My pleasure. That is Lydia Bastianich. Her new cookbook is Lydia's. From our family table to yours. She'll be speaking tonight, by the way, at the Free Library of Philadelphia at 7.30. And, of course, you can watch Lydia's Kitchen on WHYY TV 12 Saturdays at 3.30. Season premiere is Saturday, October 7th. And that wraps our show. Great show today. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is the engineer for today. Joan Isabella is WHYY's Audio General Manager. You can head on over to WHYY.org slash Studio 2 to get our podcast from Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg in Philly. I'm Avi Wolfman-Erit. See you next week.